where Paul begins the letter to the Thessalonians, a young church, and continuing it, he says in verse 13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. I was looking through USA Today newspaper this week, as I am often wont to do during the week, and I was looking at the different articles on the pages, and uh, I noticed sort of a fundamental frustration that ran through the entire paper. And basically, it's what I would call a credibility gap. Uh, who's telling the truth? You know, the articles really don't give us much. I noticed the first article of a father that accused Michael Jackson of molesting his 14-year-old son. Michael Jackson denied it flatly, yet at the same time is paying a large sum of money to settle it out of court. So you just wonder, well, what's the truth? Tanya Harding was accused of knowing about and being involved in the assault against Nancy Kerrigan, the figure skater. And she said, I, I know nothing at all. And then later she said, well, I knew something, but I wasn't involved. And again, you wonder, what's the truth? Lyle and Eric Menendez accused of killing both of their parents in Los Angeles, California. have been in trial deliberating this for a long time. And in both cases, there's a deadlock with the jury. They call it a hopeless deadlock. And once again, who's telling the truth? How do you know what to believe? President Clinton was accused of being involved in some financial subterfuge with some land deal back in his home state. And he denies it. And there's allegations. And there's investigations. And again, you wonder, who's telling the truth? The words of men are flawed words. When people speak, it is often like a maze to get through it and to find out what the credible source is. Comparing all of that, and I often walk away from a newspaper thinking, now why did I read this? It hasn't really helped me at the end of my reading this than it did at the beginning. I really haven't learned much. You hold in your hands, if you've brought one, the measuring stick of all truth, the Bible, the Word of God. And that's why we've entitled this message, The Most Important Book in the World. A Bible is one of the first things a young Christian buys or gets a hold of. I remember my first Bible. I didn't buy it. It was given to me. Actually, my first two Bibles were gifts. The first was The Good News for a Modern Man, a very simplified modern translation of the New Testament. I remember just devouring it every day. 
And I loved it because it had the little stickmen pictures every other page. I used to just kind of look at the pictures, and I got a kick out of it. Then somebody gave me a, a King James version of the New Testament. And I had a tough time reading it, though that's the version that I read for several years as a baby Christian, just the old King James. It was paperback. And uh, I'll never forget devouring it and sharing with my oldest brother the things of God and trying to tell him about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I was showing him things in the Bible that I had found. This is what Jesus said. And his reaction to me was, show me those things in a real Bible. And what he meant was that big honking Bible that we had at home, it takes a crane to lift it and, and several people to open up that thing. And it was filled with dust, and it was just there to put family records in. It had great pictures in it, but nobody read it. The Bible is available to 97% of the world's population. It's translated into more languages than any other book in history. Best-selling book of all times, perhaps the least read, certainly the least applied of all times. Yet it, is, it has influenced people throughout history. I think of Martin Luther. By reading the Bible, it caused a reformation in his heart, which also brought the Great Reformation. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs to me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. President Abraham Lincoln said, the Bible was the best gift, perhaps, that God has ever given to men. Sir Walter Scott, the great British novelist and poet, when he was dying, said to his attendant, bring me the book. He said, Sir Scott, you have thousands of books. Which one should I bring? He said, well, of course, the Bible, the only book for a dying man. Many have found it to be the only book for a living man and a living woman. At one time, this book was the textbook in our public schools. You couldn't even sneak one in now. You get in, you get in trouble to have it. Values, morality, truth was taught from the Scripture. The Ivy League schools on the East Coast, many of them were developed to propagate the Word of God throughout this country, to evangelize the Eastern Seaboard. I was in a bookstore recently, and I go to bookstores a lot. I just love books. As I was going through the bookstore, I noticed in one particular bookstore just how many books there were, and I thought of what Solomon said of the making of books, there is no end. I thought, how possibly could a person get through all of these volumes in a lifetime? Some of them were interesting books. Some of them were very helpful books. But none of them could compare to the lasting, staying, enduring quality of the scriptures throughout history. And the people that we're reading about, the Thessalonians, found out that that was true. In fact, Paul says that they received the word and welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. They were only at this point a year old. Within three weeks, they had received the word of God and they were in love with the word of God. What's interesting is that they didn't have Bibles. Think about that. You have a Bible in your hand. They didn't have it. They didn't have Bibles bound as we know it today. It wasn't until the 1400s when Johann Gutenberg invented movable type and Bibles were bound for the first time. And even then, the very elite could afford them. Yet, what Paul brought to them was the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies about Christ, the promises about Christ. 
And for three Sabbaths, it says in Acts chapter 17, he shared the word of God with them, and many of them were persuaded. Now, as we look at our text this morning, verses 13 through 16, we want to look at this word. And first of all, we want to look at the root of the word, or the roots of the word, the source. And that is, it is from God. Notice how it is put in verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Paul called it the word of God. Very important distinction. The sentiment of many people is, well, you know, everybody ought to own a Bible. They're handy to have around. They look good on the coffee table. They're great for pressing flowers. And they're imperative when it comes to putting in your family records. You want them in a Bible. But actually reading the thing, believing it and applying it, well, that's a huge step. Or the sentiment of many people is, well, it is a good book for literature's sake, and I agree we ought to put it in the colleges in the course entitled The Bible as Literature. After all, it was written by smart men. But that's all. Just a bunch of smart guys got together and wrote this book. But would a bunch of smart men get together to write a book that condemned them apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ? I don't think so. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ sang of the Word of God, of the Bible. He said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And I say unto you that not one jot or tittle, markations of the Hebrew text, will by any means pass from the law, the Old Testament Scriptures, till all are fulfilled. Now right there is how Jesus felt about the Bible. You cannot take Jesus seriously unless you take this book seriously. You can't say, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I take him seriously, unless you believe what Jesus believed about it. That not one jot or tittle will by any means pass. Not one crossing of the T, dotting of the I. Because he saw it as from God. He quoted it 64 times. And every time he didn't say, well, it's a handy little volume to have around on the coffee table. He saw it as authoritative as the Word of God. Over 2,000 times in this book, it claims to be the Word of God. Either, thus saith the Lord, or the Word of the Lord came, or they spoke the Word of God. It claims 2,000 times to be the Word of God. Now, somebody would say, well, so what? Anybody can claim anything. To prove it is another thing. I could stand in a McDonald's and say, I am a Big Mac with cheese. But that claim is invalidated by evidence. And you're right, the Bible does claim to be the Word of God. What evidences are there that it is the Word of God? Well, first of all, accurate transmission. After centuries of copying and distribution throughout the world, the message has not been marred. How do we know that? Well, we know that because there have been found, get this, over 5,500 copies, either whole copies or fragment copies, of the New Testament just the New Testament alone, let alone the Dead Sea Scrolls for the Old Testament, 5,500, dating all the way back to about 120 years after Christ. 
To get more specific, the Gospel of John, for example. A copy has been found 30 years only after John wrote the epistle himself. Now compare that with any other literature. Compare that with the Gaelic Wars written by Caesar. The earliest copy back to its original was a thousand years after it was written. Or the Odyssey by Homer. The earliest copy back to its original was 2,200 years after it was written. There's very few fragments, very few copies of these, sometimes one or just two or three. Yet nobody disputes and attacks the Odyssey or Caesar's writings, but boy, do they attack the Bible. But accurate transmission over the centuries. Secondly, reliable history. You see, this book is not just a religious prayer book. It speaks of places, families, events that have happened in history, and history bears them out. One of the most famous archaeologists born in Israel, a Jewish archaeologist, Nelson Gluick, went on record as saying, no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. And so I assert the almost incredible, accurate historical memory of the Bible, particularly so when fortified by archaeological fact. Example. For years people said, well, a lot of these stories in the Bible just aren't true because we've never found these sites and places archaeological. For instance, there's that weird story about Jesus healing a man at the pool called Bethesda in Jerusalem. You know, the one where the water is moving and the man thinks that if he gets in the water at the right time, he's going to be healed. And that's just a myth because we've never found any proof that this place exists. So they laughed it off till a few years ago they were digging around Jerusalem and they found, just as it says in John chapter 5, the pool of Bethesda with its five colonnaded porches. And their mouths were strangely silent. Or people said, well, the idea of Pontius Pilate is only in the New Testament. We've never found any other record, historical or archaeological, that's shown that there was even a guy named Pontius the Pilate, or Pontius Pilate, whoever he is. Till recently they were digging around Caesarea, and they found a large stone that had the name Tiberius Caesar, the reign in which he was the procurator of Judea, and underneath the procurator's name, Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea. They went, oops! Accurate transmission, reliable history, but then also a unified message. Think about this. You hold a book, but actually there are 66 books in this one book. 66 separate books written over 1,600 years by 40 authors in three different languages on three different continents, people from diverse backgrounds. Amos was a shepherd. Peter and John were fishermen, Daniel a prime minister, on and on. Some knew each other, most didn't. Yet they all wrote about subjects very controversial, and there was a unity in their message, not a contradiction, an incredible clarity and unity of the same message. Now, I dare you to take medical books, get 25, get 66 medical books written over 1,600 years by 40 different sources. Several different languages, different continents, all the way from the headhunters to the people in Indochina to America to the Native American Indian. And you try to treat somebody's disease with those medical books. You will kill them. They will be so contradictory. Yet the Bible has a unified message. You'd expect a chaotic text, 
but it's just the opposite. And finally, fulfilled prophecy. That is, God, through the prophets, spoke about events before they even happened, on purpose. So that when they happen, you go, oh, God told us about this. He must really be real. This must really be credible. In Isaiah chapter 46, God said, I am God, and there is none besides me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things that are not yet done. The Bible is God-breathed, and it is the only book that you can safely read without a filter. You can't find any other book, even in a Christian bookstore, that you can do that with. You can't read any Christian book without a filter. You to go, I don't know about that. Let me check it out with the truth. It is God-breathed, the Bible says. Brings me to a practical question. What is your final authority? Is it this book? Is it the truth of God? The Spirit of God speaks to the people of God through the Word of God. Is that your final authority? Do you lean on this truth, these principles? Do you apply them in a time of crisis? What do you lean on? Let me get more specific. God forbid, but what if this was the scenario? You go to the doctor, you've had headaches for months. All the Tylenol won't help. All the Excedrin won't help. Massaging the scalp won't help. You go to the doctor. You say, Doc, I've had headaches for a couple months and my vision is beginning to be blurred. Well, he asks you a few questions. You give him the answers. He gives you blood work. He takes a lateral skull x-ray. He gives you an MRI scan. And he comes back into the room with a very doleful look on his face. And he says, let me shoot straight with you. You have an inoperable brain tumor. When the dust settles, what do you do? Where do you turn? What's your source of comfort, encouragement, and truth at that time in your life? Probably every Christian, if they've been honest with themselves, had had some sort of crisis with the question, is this the Word of God? Billy Graham even has had that. He wrestled with it. He said, for the most part, I could see the evidences, but there was a few parts that I didn't quite understand. I wrestled with it. And his testimony is this. Early in my life, I had some doubts about the Word of God, but one night in 1949, I knelt before a tree stump in the middle of the woods near Forest Home, California. I opened my Bible and I said, Oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. But I accept it by faith as your infallible word from Genesis to Revelation. I settled that. And from that moment on, I have never had a single doubt that this is God's word. So when I quote the Bible, when I preach it, I know that I am preaching the truth of God. And we know that that's the truth. He always says in a message, the Bible says, several times in his messages. It's sort of his little earmark of the Billy Graham Association, the Bible says. Now let's look in verse 13, not only as the roots of the word, but let's look at the response to the word that this young church had. He says, I thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. The first word is received. The second word is welcomed. That was their response. One was an external response. The other was an internal response. The external response is to listen, to evaluate. You received it. 
You weren't resistant to it. The second word, you welcomed it, is a word that is often translated to welcome somebody into your house as your guest. That's the internal response. Now, a lot of people have the external response only. Many, many churchgoers, maybe some right now in this auditorium, would fit into the first category. They receive the word. That means they're not resistant to it, but they're very passive concerning it. They don't really welcome it into their lives and hearts to apply it on a daily basis, but they'll go along with it. They listen to the Bible and Bible teaching and sermons like this like the average American would watch television. Americans look at television, it seems, as a way to relax, to put the brain in neutral and to just kick back and be entertained, basically. Relax. They'll look at the television. They wouldn't do the things that are on the television, they say. They just like to vicariously watch it. I never do those things. It's just entertainment. I like it. It's relaxing. Some people listen to the Bible that way. Oh, I like all those stories in the Bible. Those parables are great. It's entertaining. But I never do the things that the Bible writes about. I never put them into practice. Oh, no, 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 no. But it's entertaining. I listen to it. The power of the Word of God comes when you take its truth and you bind it in shoe leather. It comes into your life, into your heart, and you start acting upon it. There are so many versions of the Bible, and you know, it's almost become a debate that is ridiculous. Well, which version is the best? And, and there, there is a credibility to that debate in, in some case. But find a version that speaks to your heart, that's a basically a credible version. And the issue isn't the version. The issue is, do you read it? Do you feed on it? There's so many different versions. There's so many different colors of Bible now. To go into a Bible bookstore, goodness, there's hunter green, and there's soft pink, and there's even paisleys now on the Bibles and fancy Bible covers. You got the thin line. You got the wide margin. You got the big print. You got the snap flap. Hundreds of different versions. In fact, somebody handed me an article just the other day from Red Lake Falls, Minnesota. The newspaper article said a group of scholars is translating the Bible into the language of the Klingons. I thought, goodness, we have taken and worshipped this television show. The rough, warlike warriors of the science fiction TV series and movie Star Trek. Glenn Prokel, the director of last summer's Klingon language camp. Yeah, I've got to go to that one this summer. That's very high on my priority list. Up in northwest Minnesota, well, it, you know, it's cold back there. And they say that the Bible will supplement a Klingon dictionary created by linguist Mark Okrand. Prokel already has translated the first few chapters of the Gospel of John, and the Hebrew scholar Mark Scholson has finished the book of Jonah. But you know what? As many Bibles as we have, it's not often read. It's really not often read very much. It's widely translated, widely circulated, but not read very much. 25%, Gallup poll tells us, of all Christians, at the most, read their Bibles daily. 25%. We find Bibles in the lost and found, and sometimes they're there for months. 
I can't imagine being without a Bible. People bring them. Some don't even bring them at all. Don't carry them at all. Some carry them, bring them, leave them. They're lost. And after a while, we just give them to anybody who wants them. Anybody who will read it. It's your Bible. It's been left. Nobody has claimed it. Take it. Use it. In the book of Hebrews, we read, The Word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. All of us should be Bible students. Even Bible teachers need to study the Bible, not to get a sermon out of it, but to see what it reveals about His God. Jeremiah said, Your words were found. I did eat them. They were the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. Oh, but I've tried to read the Bible, Skip. It's, it's tough. I make it through Genesis. It's exciting. Exodus. But I get to chapter 21, 22. I get those laws and the practices, and I just get bogged down. It just seems like a big project. How long does it take to read through the whole Bible? Well, if you read the Bible at what we call pulpit speed, slow enough to be spoken aloud and to be heard, it takes 71 hours. Divide that by 365 days a year, that's 12 minutes a day, reading it at that slow of a speed. The more you read it and the more you feed on it, that's a secret. Don't be content with being spoon-fed once a week a prepared meal. Study the Word on your own. Study to show yourself approved, Paul said. Now let's look again at verse 13 and see now the results of the Word. The results of the word. And notice the phrase, you received it as the word of God, not as the word of men, but as in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Listen to that again in the Amplified Bible. Exercising its superhuman power in those who adhere to it and trust in it and rely on it. It really works. You take this stuff, you apply it to your life, it works. We've already seen in chapter 1, verse 9, that the Word of God worked to produce salvation within the hearts of the Thessalonian believers. Then it brought them into fellowship with other Christians. Chapter 2, verse 14 tells us, You, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. But there's a whole lot more results than are what's spoken of here in this chapter. Let me give you a few of them. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Timothy says that the Word of God will enable the man of God to be complete and thoroughly equipped to do every good work. Think about that. You will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Folks, you can go to college and they will equip you for some good things, some good works. They'll prepare you for a task, for a profession. The Bible will prepare you for life itself. For every good work. In fact, Dr. William Phelps from Yale University said, I believe that a knowledge of the Bible without a college course is much more valuable than a college course without the Bible. Well, what will it do for you? If you receive it as the Word of God, you welcome it into your life, it will give you joy. You will be marked by joy. David talked about the man who meditated on the Word of God day and night as what he called the blessed man, which means the man who is very happy. In another place in the Psalms, he said, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So you'll have joy. Also, you'll have direction for your life. You'll know where to walk. David said, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. It'll help you walk the right direction. 
You know, it's amazing to me how discipleship takes place at a Bible study. People are crying out, disciple me, disciple me, show me. I have found a direct corollary that people who study the Word of God regularly and apply the Word of God from listening to it need personal counseling far less than people who do not have a steady, ongoing diet of the Word of God. Discipleship. It gives you direction for your life. Next, it gives you victory in your battles. Paul said it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As you take in the Word of God and you take in the promises of God, when you face trials and crises and temptations, you'll be able to pull out those promises and stand in them and stand firm. That's what Jesus did, didn't he? Did he enter into a philosophical debate when Satan tempted him? He said, it is written. Each time he was tempted, it'll give you victory. And then finally, it will bring growth to your life. Peter said, as newborn babies desire the pure, sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That's how you grow. You cannot grow spiritually on emotional experiences. You can only grow spiritually through the Word of God as it becomes translated through your very life. Folks, get off junk food. Those winds of doctrine that flood the church, the new thing that's being practiced, the new in vibe that goes from church to church, that clutters Christian bookstores, the new thing. Jeremiah said, look to the old ways, go back to the old paths which are the ways of life. A steady diet of the Word of God will clean your life out. There's a young guy that went up to a minister and says, I'm so discouraged. I read the Bible. I can't remember it. Have you ever had that problem? I have that problem a lot. There's a lot of it. There's so many principles. What did I read this morning? And he was so discouraged. And the wise minister said, listen, you pour water over a sieve. No matter how much you pour, you don't collect very much, but you come out with a clean sieve. As you pour the Word of God into your life, you might not remember all of it, but keep it up. You'll, you'll remember some of it. You'll come out with a clean heart, a clean mind. You'll transform the way you think. Fourthly and finally, look at verse 14 through 16. We see now that there is the resistance to the Word of God. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. They do not please God, and they are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. The Word of God will effectively work in you, but it will also effectively anger people who see you with it, live by it, preach it. They don't like it. People who do not live by the Word aren't sympathetic with those who do, especially when those who do voice it. <laughs> we were eating dinner last night in Red Robin. I just love their burgers, their salads. And as we were eating and my son was there, the Red Robin saw my son, the person who dresses up like it, and came over to the table and rubbed Nathan's head. And we were talking to the Red Robin. And finally my wife said, Red Robin, are, are you a Christian, Red Robin? I'm thinking, Lenya, you're witnessing to a bird.
And then she says, because if you're not a Christian, we can make sure that you know that you are one. And I don't know who was in the bird outfit, but just waved goodbye <laughs> with this little red wing and walked off. And Nathan said, Mommy, you scared the red robin away. Why'd you do that? Well, Nathan, shouldn't I have told the red robin about the Lord? And again, I'm just thinking, she's witnessing to a bird. <laughs> but you scared him away. Oh, but I didn't scare him away. I just asked a simple question about that bird's relationship with the Lord. And the bird flew away on its own. The Bible has been the focus of attacks since the beginning. Think of just Paul the Apostle. Here's a guy who says, you know, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe that he's the fulfillment of Scripture. And Paul the Apostle goes around and tells the world about it. Listen to what happened to him. He was beaten up in Philippi. He caused a riot in Thessalonica. He was beaten up in Berea, stoned in Lystra and Derbe got put in jail in Philippi, got put in jail in Jerusalem, caused a mob scene in Jerusalem, got put in jail in Caesarea for two years, gets put on a slave ship, sent to Rome, and then ended up in a Mamertine prison in Rome. All because he stood up for the Word of God. It gets resisted. There's people who... Do, and that is perhaps why we're a little bit reluctant, are we not? To say it, to bring it up, to carry a Bible, because we know that people are resistant to it. It's always been so. Jesus said, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. There's an attack on the word of God. In 303, Diocletian, the Roman emperor, decided, I've had enough of these Christians and these Bibles, these scrolls being circulated. I will destroy Christianity and take away their Bibles. Voltaire, that famous unbeliever, scoffed at Christians and said, I predict within 25 years there'll be no more Bibles and no more Christians. What's really interesting is that 40 years after he died, they used his house, the International Bible Society, to print Bibles and send them all over the world. Boy, God has a great sense of humor. I love it. Roy Aldrich observes, Satan does not waste his ammunition. Professors who are being paid to teach philosophy, English, biology, mathematics, often take time from their class period to undermine the Bible and Christianity. Why aren't they doing the same with other sacred books of other religions? The answer is that Satan, the original liar, is sympathetic with the books that lie. His real enmity is directed against the book of truth because it contains the dynamite for his defeat. Isaiah said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You say, eh, but Skip, the Bible's a little boring in some parts. I admit it's not easy in certain parts. But ask this question, do you receive the word of God? Do you welcome it? Are you passive? Yeah, it's entertaining, great stories. Now it's time to go home. Or do you welcome it as the Word of God speaking directly to your heart, changing the way you think and the way you live? Perhaps it's boring because you don't know its author. That has a lot to do with it. There was a young gal who went out and bought a book. She read the first few chapters, laid it aside. She was disinterested until she met the author. 
Not only did she meet the author, but they struck up a, a close friendship. They fell in love. He asked her to marry him. That book was no longer boring to her. She now interpreted all of those stories, all of those chapters, through the heart of love. Maybe that's the secret this morning. Maybe it's just a foreign book. You don't bring it. You don't own it. It's not important to you because you don't know the author. If you knew the author, you'd read it as a love letter from his heart to your heart that would change you continuously and for good. If today you can look at your life and you can say, I know the book and I know about the book, but I don't know its author personally very well. That's easy. He's here to meet you. If you come to him, he'll enter your heart and change your life forever. Then you will interpret his writings through a heart of love. 